0: Episode 5 of Bygone Tales. I want to apologize for the short episode this evening. Uh, I had intended on bringing three stories uh, this evening, however, I I had a bit of a technical issue with one of the stories, so we will only have two tonight. Uh, I also want to put a plug for our Facebook page, Bygone Tales Podcast. On this page, we periodically put up a fable by Ambrose Bierce. Um, periodically, I'll, I'll put up uh, quotes that I come across that, uh, that I find interesting. And starting yesterday, we are going to be running a serial of Lord Dunsany's Gods of Pagana. I recently finished reading this this book, and I thought it would be a, a fun book to share with everybody. However, it's, uh, it's about 34, 35 chapters Each chapter is, uh, you know, ranges from half a page to maybe three on at at the longest. So it wasn't really a good choice for the podcast. I would have had to devote uh, probably three or four episodes to it. So I decided I'd just put it up on the Facebook page. So we're going to try and put up a chapter every every other day, maybe every three days so uh feel free to uh come on by and and check that out and uh, if you like what you see at the Facebook page feel free to uh to give us a like and follow us all right well let's uh let's go ahead and jump into uh into our stories for tonight uh the first story tonight is a story by Henry cuttner a little bit of information about the author uh, he was born in nineteen fifteen died in nineteen fifty eight Uh, He was a prolific author, even though he only was around for a short period of time. Husband to sci-fi writer C.L. Moore from 1940 until his death in 1958, and he heavily influenced many writers like Marion Zimmer Bradley and Roger Zelazny. Uh, Richard Matheson, uh, who you probably know from I Am Legend, uh, actually dedicated that novel to Kuttner. Uh, Ray Bradbury uh, referred to Cutner as one of the neglected masters and a pomegranate writer, popping with seeds and full of ideas. Over his career, he wrote under many pseudonyms, most notably Lewis Paget, which he shared with his wife C. L. Moore. In 2007, a film loosely based off of one of Lewis Paget's stories, uh, *Mimsy Where the Borogoves*, was released under the title *The Last Mimsy*. All right, and let's get to the story. The Graveyard Rats by Henry Cutner. Old Mason, the caretaker of one of Salem's oldest and most neglected cemeteries, had a feud with the rats. Generations ago, they had come up from the wharves and settled in the graveyard, a colony of abnormally large rats and when Mason had taken charge after the inexplicable disappearance of the former caretaker, he had decided that they must go. At first he had set traps for them, and put poisoned food by their burrows, and later he tried to shoot them, but it did no good. The rats stayed, multiplying and overrunning the graveyard with their ravenous hordes. They were large, even for the mus decamanus, which sometimes measures fifteen inches in length, exclusive of the naked pink and gray tail. Mason had caught glimpses of some as large as good-sized cats, and when, once or twice, the gravediggers had uncovered their burrows, the malodorous tunnels were large enough to enable a man to crawl into them on hands and knees. The ships that had come generations ago from distant ports to the rotting Salem wharves had brought strange cargoes. Mason wondered sometimes at the extraordinary size of these burrows. He recalled certain vaguely disturbing legends he had heard since coming to ancient witch-haunted Salem, tales of a moribund, inhuman life that was said to exist in forgotten burrows in the earth. The old days, when Cotton Mather had hunted down the evil cults that worshipped Hecate and the dark Magna Mater in frightful orgies, had passed. But dark, gabled houses still leaned perilously toward each other over narrow, cobbled streets, and blasphemous secrets and mysteries were said to be hidden in subterranean cellars and caverns, where forgotten pagan rites were still celebrated in defiance of law and sanity. Wagging their gray heads wisely, the elders declared that there were worse things than rats and maggots crawling in the unhallowed earth of the ancient Salem cemeteries. And then too there was this curious dread of the rats. Mason disliked and respected the ferocious little rodents, for he knew the danger that lurked in their flashing, needle sharp fangs. But he could not understand the inexplicable horror which the oldsters held for deserted, rat infested houses. He had heard vague rumours of ghoulish beings that dwelt far underground and that had the power of commanding the rats marshalling them like horrible armies. The rats, the old men whispered, were messengers between this world and the grim and ancient caverns far below Salem. Bodies had been stolen from graves for nocturnal subterranean feasts, they said. The myth of the Pied Piper is a fable that hides a blasphemous horror, and the black pits of Avernus have brought forth hell-spawned monstrosities that never venture into the light of day." Mason paid little attention to these tales. He did not fraternize with his neighbors, and in fact, did all he could to hide the existence of the rats from intruders. Investigation, he realized, would undoubtedly mean the opening of many graves. And while some of the gnawed, empty coffins could be attributed to the activities of the rats, Mason might find it difficult to explain the mutilated bodies that lay in some of the coffins. The purest gold is used in filling teeth, and this gold is not removed when a man is buried. Clothing, of course, is another matter, for usually the undertaker provides a plain broadcloth suit that is cheap and easily recognizable. But gold is another matter, and sometimes, too, there were medical students and less reputable doctors who were in need of cadavers, and not over-scrupulous as to where these were obtained. So far, Mason had successfully managed to discourage investigation. He had fiercely denied the existence of the rats, even though they sometimes robbed him of his prey. Mason did not care what happened to the bodies after he had performed his gruesome thefts, but the rats inevitably dragged away the whole cadaver through the hole they gnawed in the coffin. The size of these burrows occasionally worried Mason. Then, too, there was the curious circumstances of the coffins always being gnawed open at the end, never at the side or the top. It was almost as though the rats were working under the direction of some impossibly intelligent leader. Now he stood in an open grave and threw a last sprinkling of wet earth on the heap beside the pit. It was raining, a slow, cold drizzle that for weeks had been descending from soggy black clouds. The graveyard was a slough of yellow, sucking mud from which the rain-washed tombstones stood up in irregular battalions. The rats had retreated to their burrows, and Mason had not seen one for days. But his gaunt, unshaved face was set in frowning lines. The coffin on which he was standing was a wooden one. The body had been buried several days earlier, but Mason had not dared to disinter it before. A relative of the dead man had been coming to the grave at intervals, even in the drenching rain. But he would hardly come at this late hour, no matter how much grief he might be suffering, Mason thought, grinning wryly. He straightened and laid the shovel aside. From the hill on which the ancient graveyard lay, he could see the lights of Salem flickering dimly through the downpour. He drew a flashlight from his pocket. He would need light now. Taking up the spade, he bent and examined the fastenings of the coffin. Abruptly, he stiffened. Beneath his feet, he sensed an unquiet stirring and scratching as though something were moving within the coffin. For a moment, a pang of superstitious fear shot through Mason and then Rage replaced it as he realized the significance of the sound. The rats had forestalled him again. In a paroxysm of anger, Mason wrenched at the fastenings of the coffin. He got the sharp edge of the shovel under the lid and pried it up until he could finish the job with his hands. Then he sent the flashlight's cold beam darting down into the coffin. Rain spattered against the white satin lining the coffin was empty. Mason saw a flicker of movement at the head of the case, and darted the light in that direction. The end of the sarcophagus had been gnawed through, and a gaping hole led into darkness. A black shoe, limp and dragging, was disappearing as Mason watched, and abruptly he realized that the rats had forestalled him by only a few minutes. He fell on his hands and knees and made a hasty clutch at the shoe, and the flashlight, incontinently fell into the coffin and went out. The shoe was tugged from his grasp. He heard a sharp, excited squealing, and then he had the flashlight again and was darting its light into the burrow. It was a large one. It had to be, or the corpse could not have been dragged along it. Mason wondered at the size of the rats that could carry away a man's body, but the thought of the loaded revolver in his pocket fortified him. Probably, if the corpse had been an ordinary one, Mason would have left the rats with their spoils rather than venture into the narrow burrow. But he remembered an especially fine set of cufflinks he had observed, as well as a stick pin that was undoubtedly a genuine pearl. With scarcely a pause, he clipped the flashlight to his belt and crept into the burrow. It was a tight fit, but he managed to squeeze himself along, Ahead of him, in the flashlight's glow, he could see the shoes dragging along the wet earth of the bottom of the tunnel. He crept along the burrow as rapidly as he could, occasionally barely able to squeeze his lean body through the narrow walls. The air was overpowering with its musty stench of carrion. If he could not reach the corpse in a minute, Mason decided, he would turn back. Belated fears were beginning to crawl, maggot-like, within his mind but greed urged him on. He crawled forward, several times passing the mouths of adjoining tunnels. The walls of the burrow were damp and slimy, and twice lumps of dirt dropped behind him. The second time he paused and screwed his head around to look back. He could see nothing, of course, until he had unhooked the flashlight from his belt and reversed it. Several clods lay on the ground behind him, and the danger of his position suddenly became real and terrifying. With thoughts of a cave-in making his pulse race, he decided to abandon the pursuit, even though he had now almost overtaken the corpse and the invisible things that pulled it. But he had overlooked one thing. The burrow was too narrow to allow him to turn. Panic touched him briefly. But he remembered a side tunnel he had just passed and backed awkwardly along the tunnel until he came to it he thrust his legs into it backing until he found himself able to turn then he hurriedly began to retrace his way although his knees were bruised and painful agonizing pain shot through his leg he felt sharp teeth sink into his flesh and kicked out frantically there was a shrill squealing and the scurry of many feet Flashing the light behind him, Mason caught his breath in a sob of fear as he saw a dozen great rats watching him intently, their slitted eyes glittering in the light. They were great, misshapen things, as large as cats, and behind them he caught a glimpse of a dark shape that stirred and moved swiftly aside into the shadow. And he shuddered at the unbelievable size of the thing. The light had held them for a moment but they were edging closer, their teeth dull orange in the pale light. Mason tugged at his pistol, managed to extricate it from his pocket, and aimed carefully. It was an awkward position, and he tried to press his feet into the soggy sides of the burrow so that he should not inadvertently send a bullet into one of them. The rolling thunder of the shot deafened him for a time, and the clouds of smoke set him coughing. When he could hear again and the smoke had cleared, He saw that the rats were gone. He put the pistol back and began to creep swiftly along the tunnel, and then, with a scurry and a rush, they were upon him again. They swarmed over his legs, biting and squealing insanely, and Mason shrieked horribly as he snatched for his gun. He fired without aiming, and only luck saved him from blowing a foot off. This time the rats did not retreat so far but Mason was crawling as swiftly as he could along the burrow, ready to fire again at the first sound of another attack. There was a patter of feet, and he sent the light stabbing behind him. A great, gray rat paused and watched him. Its long, ragged whiskers twitched, and its scabrous, naked tail was moving slowly from side to side. Mason shouted, and the rat retreated. He crawled on, pausing briefly, the black gap of a side tunnel at his elbow, as he made out a shapeless huddle on the damp clay a few yards ahead. For a second, he thought it was a mass of earth that had dislodged from the roof, and then he recognized it as a human body. It was a brown and shriveled mummy, and with a dreadful, unbelieving shock, Mason realized that it was moving. It was crawling towards him, and in the pale glow of the flashlight the man saw a frightful gargoyle face thrust into his own. It had the passionless death's head skull of a long dead corpse, instinct with hellish life, and the glazed eyes swollen and bulbous betrayed the thing's blindness. It made a faint groaning sound as it crawled towards Mason, stretching its ragged and granulated lips in a grin of dreadful hunger and Mason was frozen with abysmal fear and loathing. Just before the horror touched him, Mason flung himself frantically into the burrow at his side. He heard a scrabbling noise at his heels, and the thing groaned dully as it came after him. Mason glanced over his shoulder, screamed, and propelled himself desperately through the narrow burrow. He crawled along awkwardly, sharp stones cutting his hands and knees. Dirt showered into his eyes, but he dared not pause even for a moment. He scrambled on, gasping, cursing, and praying hysterically. Squealing triumphantly, the rats came at him, horrible hunger in their eyes. Mason almost succumbed to their vicious teeth before he succeeded in beating them off. The passage was narrowing, and in a frenzy of terror, he kicked and screamed and fired until the hammer clicked on an empty shell but he had driven them off. He found himself crawling under a great stone embedded in the roof that dug cruelly into his back. It moved a little as his weight struck it, and an idea flashed into Mason's fright-crazed mind. If he could bring down the stone so that it blocked the tunnel! The earth was wet and soggy from the rains, and he hunched himself half upright and dug away at the dirt around the stone. The rats were coming closer. He saw their eyes glowing in the reflection of the flashlight's beam. Still, he clawed frantically at the earth. The stone was giving. He tugged at it, and it rocked in its foundation. A rat was approaching, the monster he had already glimpsed. Gray and leprous and hideous, it crept forward with its orange teeth bared, and in its wake came the blind, dead thing, groaning as it crawled. Mason gave a last, frantic tug at the stone. He felt it slide downward, and then he went scrambling along the tunnel. Behind him, the stone crashed down, and he heard a sudden, frightful shriek of agony. Clods showered upon his legs. A heavy weight fell upon his feet, and he dragged them free with difficulty. The entire tunnel was collapsing. Gasping with fear, Mason threw himself forward as the soggy earth collapsed at his heels. The tunnel narrowed until he could barely use his hands and legs to propel himself. He wriggled forward like an eel and suddenly felt satin tearing beneath his clawing fingers. And then his head crashed against something that barred his path. He moved his legs, discovering that they were not pinned under the collapsed earth. He was lying flat on his stomach and when he tried to raise himself, he found that the roof was only a few inches from his back. Panic shot through him. When the blind horror had blocked his path, he had flung himself desperately into a side tunnel, a tunnel that had no outlet. He was in a coffin, an empty coffin, into which he had crept through the hole the rats had gnawed in its end. He tried to turn on his back and found that he could not. The lid of the coffin pinned him down inexorably. Then he braced himself and strained at the coffin lid. It was immovable, and even if he could escape from the sarcophagus, how could he claw his way up through five feet of hard-packed earth? He found himself gasping. It was dreadfully fetid, unbearably hot. In a paroxysm of terror, he ripped and clawed at the satin until it was shredded. He made a futile attempt to dig with his feet at the earth from the collapsed burrow that blocked his retreat. If he were only able to reverse his position, he might be able to claw his way through to air. Air! White, hot agony lanced through his breast, throbbed in his eyeballs. His head seemed to be swelling, growing larger and larger, and suddenly he heard the exultant squealing of the rats. He began to scream insanely, but could not drown them out. For a moment he thrashed about hysterically within his narrow prison, and then he was quiet, gasping for air. His eyelids closed, his blackened tongue protruded, and he sank down into the blackness of death with the mad squealing of the rats dinning in his ears. Well, this story first appeared in Weird Tales in 1936. It was reprinted a few times, most notably in The Gruesome Book, 1983, and The Weird Tales, Seven Decades of Terror, 1997. It was also adapted very loosely for the made-for-TV film Trilogy of Terror 2 in 1996. Honestly, I would not look up that film, but if if you're a glutton for punishment, I'm sure you can find a copy floating out there somewhere. Alright, well let's move on to our next story. This is a a rather short piece, um, written by Clark Ashton Smith. A little information about the author. He was born in 1893, died in 1961. He was a fairly well-known poet, um, and at the time... Uh, was a fairly well-known fiction writer and uh, gained some prominence as a visual artist. He first came to prominence as a poet. Uh, He was cited as being one of the last of the West Coast Romantics, a school of poetry that included poets like Ambrose Bierce. He was also one of the big three of weird fiction, along with Robert Howard and H.P. Lovecraft. However, following a very tragic period in the mid-1930s, um, we had the death of his mother in 1935, the suicide of his friend Robert Howard in 1936, the death by cancer of his friend H.P. Lovecraft in 1937, and finally the death of his father later in the year, 1937. He virtually gave up writing fiction and turned turned to sculpture and returned to writing some poetry. Uh, he passed away... Rather quietly in 1961 after suffering a series of strokes. All right, well, let's move on to his story. Satastore by Clark Ashton Smith. Listen, for this is the tale that was told to a fair Lamia by the demon Carnatus as they sat together on top of Mophi above the sources of the Nile in those years when the sphinx was young. Now the Lamia was vexed, for her beauty was grown an evil legend in both Thebes and Elephantine, so that men were become fearful of her lips and cautious of her embrace, and she had no lover for almost a fortnight. She lashed her serpentine tail on the ground, and moaned softly, and wept those mythical tears which a serpent weeps, and the demon told this tale for her comforting. Long, long ago, in the red cycles of my youth, said Carnatus, I was like all young demons, and was prone to use the agility of my wings in fantastic flights, to hover and poise like a gyre eagle above Tartarus and the pits of Python, or to lift the broad blackness of my vans on the orbit of stars. I have followed the moon from evening twilight to morning twilight and I have gazed on the secrets of that Medusian face which she averts eternally from the earth. I have read, through filming ice, the ithalic runes on the columns yet extant in her deserts, and I know the hieroglyphs which solve forgotten riddles, or hint Aeonian histories on the walls of her cities taken by inelocutable snow. I have flown through the triple ring of Saturn, and have mated with lovely basilisks on isles towering league-high from stupendous oceans, where each wave is like the rise and fall of Himalayas. I have dared the clouds of Jupiter, and the black and freezing abysses of Neptune which are crowned with eternal starlight, and I have sailed beyond to incommensurable suns, compared with which the sun that thou knowest is a corpse-candle in a stinted vault." There, in tremendous planets, I have furled my flight on the terraced mountains, large as fallen asteroids, where, with a thousand names and a thousand images, undreamt of evil is served and worshipped in unsurmisable ways. Or, perched in the flesh-colored lips of columnar blossoms, whose perfume was an ecstasy of incommunicable dreams, I have mocked the wiving monsters, and have lured their females, that sang and fawned at the base of my hiding place. Now, in my indefatigable questing among the remoter galaxies, I come one day to that forgotten and dying planet which, in the language of its unrecorded peoples, was called satastor Immense and drear and gray beneath a waning sun, Far fissured with enormous chasms, and covered from pole to pole with the never-ebbing tides of the desert sand. It hung in space without moon or satellite, an abomination and a token of doom to fairer and younger worlds checking the speed of my interstellar flight i followed its equator with a poised and level wing above the peaks of cyclopean volcanoes and bare terrific ridges of elder hills and deserts pale with the ghastliness of salt that were manifestly the beds of former oceans In the very center of one of these ocean beds, beyond sight of the mountains that formed its primeval shoreline and leagues below their level, I found a vast and winding valley that plunged even deeper into the abysses of this dreadful world. It was walled with perpendicular cliffs and buttressed with pinnacles of a rusty red stone that were fretted into a million bizarrely sinister forms by the sinking of the olden seas i flew slowly among the cliffs as they wound ever downward in torturous spirals for mile on mile of utter and irredeemable desolation and the light grew dimmer above me as ledge on ledge and battlement on battlement of that strange red stone upreared themselves between my wings and the heavens Here, when I rounded a sudden turn of the precipice, in the profoundest depth where the rays of the sun fell only for a brief while at noon, and the rocks were purple with everlasting shadows, I found a pool of dark green water, the last remnant of the former ocean, ebbing still amid deep, insuperable walls, and from this pool there cried a voice, in accents that were subtly sweet as mortal wine of the mandragora, and faint as the murmuring of shells, and the voice said, Pause and remain, I pray, and tell me who thou art, who comest thus to this accursed solitude wherein I die. Then, pausing on the brink of the pool, I peered into its gulf of shadow, and saw the pallid glimmering of a female form that upreared itself from the waters, and the form was that of a cyrene, with her hair the color of ocean kelp, and beryline eyes, and a dolphin-shaped tail, and I said to her, I am the demon Carnatus, but who art thou who lingerest thus in this ultimate pit of abomination, in the depth of a dying world? She answered, I am a cyrene, and my name is Lispiel, Of the seas wherein I saw and sported at leisure many centuries ago, And whose gallant mariners I drew to an enchanted death On the shores of my disastrous isle, There remains only this fallen pool. Alas, for the pool dwindles daily, And when it is wholly gone, I too must perish. She began to weep, and her briny tears fell down And were added to the briny waters fain would i have comforted her and i said weep not for i will lift thee upon my wings and bear thee to some newer world where the sky-blue waters of abounding seas are shattered to intricate webs of wanest foam on low shores that are green and ariate with pristine spring there perchance for eons thou shalt have thine abode and galleys with painted oars and great barges, purpureal sailed, shall be drawn upon thy rocks in the red light of sunsets, domed with storm, and shall mingle the crash of their figured prows with the sweet sorcery of thy mortal singing. But still she wept, and would not be comforted, crying, Thou art kind, but this world avail me not, for I was born of the waters of this world, and with its waters I must die alas my lovely seas that ran in unbroken sapphire from shores of perennial blossoms to shores of everlasting snow alas the quinquimirs of cycle-ended wars and the heavy-laden argosies with sails and cordage of bisousus that plied between barbaric isles with their cargoes of topaz or garnet-colored wines and jade and ivory idols in the antique summers that now are less than legend. Alas, the dead captains, the beautiful dead sailors that were borne by the ebbing tide to my couches of amber seaweed in my caverns underneath a cedared promontory alas the kisses that i laid on their cold and hueless lips on their sealed marmorian eyelids and sorrow and pity seized me at her words for i knew that she had spoken the lamentable truth that her doom was in the lessening of the bitter waters So after many professed condolences, no less vague than vain, I bade her a melancholy farewell, and flew heavily away between the spiral cliffs where I had come, and clomb the somber skies till the world's saddest door was only a darkening moat far down in space but the tragic shadow of the cyrene's fate and her sorrow lay grievously upon me for hours and only in the kisses of a beautiful fierce vampire in a far-off and young and exuberant world was i able to forget it and i tell you now the tale thereof that haply thou mayest be consoled solely by the contemplation of a plight that was infinitely more dolorous and irremediable than thine own All right, that short little prose poem-esque story was first published in Weird Tales in 1930. Well, if you've enjoyed the stories tonight, please feel free to stop by our Facebook page. That's uh, Bygone Tales Podcast. Uh, you can also contact us via email at bygontales at gmail.com. Uh, on our website at mccartneylane.com. Uh, each of our episodes, we also have a comment section, so feel free to pop in there and, uh, and, and leave a message. Um, if you're enjoying the podcast, it would really help us out a lot if you could swing by iTunes and leave us a, uh, a five star review. I mean, really, if you leave us any review you, you feel we deserve, but uh, the five star reviews will allow us to uh, get a little more notoriety. And, you know, the more listeners we get, the uh, more likely we are to uh, stay around a while. And I also want to throw out an invitation to anybody who might be interested in narrating a story or a poem on Bygone Tales. Um, if this is something you might be interested in, uh, go ahead and contact me at bygontales at gmail.com. Um, I, will, I will return your email as soon as possible, and we will... Uh, We will hammer out the details and uh, see if we can't uh, accommodate getting your voice up here on the podcast. All right, well, thank you for spending the evening with us, and until next time. If you've enjoyed the stories read tonight, please, by all means, check out OldStyleTales.com. All one word. You know, I, I think their website says it best. Quote, Old Style Tales Press is an independent literary press which publishes crafted anthologies of classic ghost stories, tales of horror, and the supernatural from the golden age of horror fiction, 1818 to 1937. editions." featuring original illustrations, annotations, and opening and closing commentary on each story. And I have to tell you, the production quality of these books is absolutely fantastic, and really, it's a very, very attractive price point in order to purchase these. You can buy them either as ebook or as physical books that you can hold in your hand, and if you're a fan of books like I am, I know you're going to go for the physical books that you can hold in your hand. However, you can get a collection of volumes the ebooks that they have for a very affordable price. Please go and check them out. It's a great product that they put out. In fact, I recommend it so highly that they're not even actually promoting this show. I just really, really like their product. So check them out. OldStyleTales.com.